Welcome to Kman Podcast. This is the third episode of our COVID-19 series and the 11th episode of Kman Podcast. Today we have two wonderful guests with us and we will talk about COVID-19 and the media in Turkey and around the world. Our first guest is Argin Bulut. He received his PhD from the Institute of Communications Research at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Currently, he works as an associate professor at Koch University's Media and Visual Arts Department, where he teaches classes on media industries, video game studies, media sociology, and media and populism. He re- researches in the area of political economy of media and cultural production, video game studies, media and politics, and critical theory. He is also the author of A Precarious Game, The Illusion of Dream Jobs in the Video Game Industry, and we will talk about his book in this podcast too. Our second guest is John Artuna. He has a PhD in media and communication studies from Galatasaray University. He's currently working as a full-time lecturer at Bahçeşehir University, New Media Department. He has also been working as a journalist for the last 20 years. Currently, he's also working as a freelance journalist for mainly international news organizations. Welcome, John. Welcome, Argin, to the podcast. Thank you, Denis. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Denis. I generally start this podcast by asking the scholars I interview to reflect on their earlier work first and then ask about their latest research. But this time, I want to reverse the order because your latest research brings together the themes of precarity, labor, journalism, authoritarianism, all of which appear separately in your individual work. So we'll branch out to your earlier research later. So let's start with your latest research on the effects of the pandemic on journalism in an authoritarian context. Could you broadly outline your research questions and how you went about conducting your research and what are the preliminary findings? I don't really consider myself to be a former journalist, but Jana and I are former friends from uh, NTV. I, I worked at NTV for four years, so Jana and I are old friends. I have been interested in the question of precarity as an endemic dimension of late capitalism. and. I was reading reports about newsrooms being under threat economically across the globe. Uh, I was also struck by how even liberal uh, communities in Turkey found the press briefings of the government useful, reliable and transparent. So I was just curious about this and I called John and I asked him whether he would be interested in doing a collaborative research and uh, he kindly accepted and that's how we started. Yes, one day Ergin has called me and uh, this whole story started as he just introduced. Turkey uh, is in a very poor condition when it comes to press freedom. I mean, the country ranks 154th in 180 countries in the press freedom index of reporters without borders. It's not only the jailing of journalists, but also the high unemployment rates among journalists who are sidelined because of the, for example, acquisition of many mainstream outlets by pro-government businessmen and the lack of resources for those who are working in independent outlets. So again, the main question was to find out if the pandemic further deteriorated the existing situation. 
we conducted semi-structured interviews with many journalists who were working for mainstream, independent media, for international news outlets, freelancers, unemployed from Istanbul, the largest city and the media capital of Turkey, and from Ankara, the administrative capital city, and also from southern and southeastern cities like Diyarbakir and Gaziantep. In general, we asked the journalists how the pandemic affected their economic livelihoods, what uh, have the uh, journalists who have contracted COVID-19 experienced, how have their media institutions responded to the pandemic in terms of creating them uh, decent working conditions. Uh, however, further, we also asked them how the pandemic impacted the existing environment regarding their freedom of speech and the freedom of speech in general, and if they have experienced increasing censorship or have they uh, witnessed an opening uh, since COVID-19 outbreak. This was the main outline of our research. And if I were to say a few things about our preliminary findings, these uh, preliminary findings overall suggest that the political claim to protect public immunity through a medical state of emergency has in fact actually demeaned the already problematic public sphere in Turkey, ultimately boosting journalists and citizens, our immunity uh, for uh, authoritarianism. Although the government had long been uh, banning most of the opposition movement's public demonstrations prior to the pandemic, as we all know, COVID-19 has distinctively given the government the pretext to obstruct channels for independent, objective journalism and also physically limit the capacity uh, of journalists to report from the field. Therefore, in the specific context of Turkey, journalists' ability to produce decent work uh, and properly practice their profession has shrunk for medical and political reasons. And overall, it looks like COVID-19 has been a multiplier of, of the country's ongoing journalism crises in terms of harming journalists' economic livelihoods, damaging their bodies, as John uh, alluded to, and also limiting their already constrained freedoms of, uh, of speech. Quite a broad research, and um, your preliminary findings also show that the, the depth of the research. Is there a particular finding that surprised you? And are there particular solutions or roundabout ways that journalists found to navigate these dire conditions? Um, for me, uh, one surprising thing was that some journalists were somewhat in a nostalgia for the days when Turkey was ruled with coalition governments. Uh, they have shared extraordinary stories with us. Um, but uh, I would like to also emphasize that this nostalgia is not a political one. It is not that they are really missing those years or, or fetishizing the, these uh, years, but still they seem to have a longing for a time when they were respected by politicians. And you know, despite all the problems they had, it looks like truth somewhat mattered uh, a little bit more and their profession mattered back then. They were respected more. Uh, they also respected their own work more compared to these days. And they were able to ask questions to authorities, which, which really mattered a lot for them. And a second uh, surprising thing for me was about the public nature of the pandemic as a crisis. Because this is a public health crisis, right, which is concerning to all of us, 
journalists we talked to indicated that sensational journalism took a hit and it is no longer favored. So, you know, now, of course, it doesn't necessarily mean that this sort of journalism is dead, but still the kind of sensational journalism uh, about which Jen also wrote foregrounded, you know, things like soup drinking as a medical solution to coronavirus is no longer able to find much space. Uh, and although the overall outcome of the pandemic has not been good for journalists uh, in many, many ways, there was some space, at least for good journalism, at least during the initial periods of the pandemic, mainly because, uh, again, because of the public nature of this crisis, the government needed journalists from all circles, and obviously that space has shrunk again. However, I should at this point mention that the uh, celebrated transparency efforts from the Ministry of Health had been a very short-lived one. Because in the early days, as uh, Ergin has stated, uh, in the early days of the pandemic, even the independent media outlets' correspondents were permitted to ask questions in the daily press briefings. And this was celebrated as an opening from the officials. However, later, uh, what we have seen, and uh, what the journalists told us was that as the cases increased and concerns about the handling of the crisis increased, parallel to this, the numbers of press conferences decreased and the measures such as the time limits, uh, one question at a time rule, etc. Those measures applied in uh, press conferences in a way, uh, transformed these into press statements. So I think the strategy of transparency was left aside too soon. And again, tight measures in the circulation of information had been reintroduced quickly. Uh, this was also done by opening investigations to some doctors and officials who spoke to the independent news sources. The mainstream uh, media mainly stick to the scientific committee members and their statements. And let's not forget that this committee was formed by the government in the early days of the pandemic. So again, what we saw was uh, business as usual. And again, adding to the surprising factor uh, of our uh, research about the nostalgia for the uh, coalition government times, we are talking about late 1990s and before, experienced journalists were telling us that it was nearly impossible to leak any kind of information from the official sources because the power had been consolidated in the hands of a few uh, who were tightly controlling all the institutions. So they said it was not possible for them to learn about more details or to learn about uh, different information about the pandemic rather than what the officials were telling them and what the officials were telling to the public. So they were complaining about the limited opportunities in the field of journalism. Right. It's so interesting to hear how the pandemic has shaped the post-truth period and um, how the different regimes of post-truth are manifesting in different countries. Since we are dealing with authoritarianism and the pandemic around the world, not just in Turkey. Uh, now I would like to branch out to the more um, general issues of journalism under the conditions of authoritarianism in Turkey. Although you both um, have touched upon this, I would like to um, ask a few specific questions from your research. You both have 
conducted research individually and reflected on authoritarianism in Turkey in your academic work. It's not the first time Turkey is living in an authoritarian setting, but it seems like branding is a new aspect of it. John, you write about the self-branding of pseudo-experts on TV, especially during the pandemic, and uh, how news coverage shapes public opinion, especially in the aftermath of the 2016 coup attempt. Could you first talk about that, and then I'll ask my question about authoritarianism to Ivan. Well, the, uh, the restrictions on TV appearance of opposition voices have been uh, practiced uh, long before the pandemic, I can say. Uh, but when we look at the general uh, media ownership structure, uh, nearly 19, uh, nearly 90, 95% of the media is assumed to be under the direct influence of governments. Uh, in the country. As again, uh, when you look at the ownership structure and the uh, owner's relationship with the president and the government, this uh, leads to the uh, elimination of critical voices from the mainstream media in general. I mean, there has been an ever-shrinking list of experts or so-called experts or pseudo-experts, as you call them, who are called in to comment on every issue you can see the same person commenting on Turkey's military operation in Syria, U.S. presidential elections, Turkish economy, women's rights, and on COVID-19 vaccine trials, okay? This seriously limits the scope of discussion in the public sphere. And in the case of pandemic, again, it was really uh, very hard for the public to learn about the actual figures about the cases and the number of people who lost their lives. Until recently, after the opposition municipalities started to share their own figures, a huge proportion of the cases were not reported as they had been considered as asymptomatical, according to health ministry. And this really affected public's perception of the severity of the pandemic. And again, because of the limited uh, scope of people who are uh, given space in the media, it's uh, not really possible to have a healthy conversation about the pandemic and the measures taken to tackle that. Right, and it boils down to the responsibility of the media in shaping the public opinion. And it seems like authoritarianism does not help that. And also, of course, the information that people get from journalism affects the way they deal with the pandemic, the precautions they take, the way they lead their daily lives. So there's nothing uh, light about that um, responsibility. And Argin, um, you have written about the paternalistic and masculine branding of the state. Could you reflect on authoritarianism and the issue of branding as it emerges from your research? And if, re if relevant, the research you did together? Definitely. So um, branding is one of those, you know, uh, commonly studied topics within media studies. But as it relates to authoritarianism, branding basically became an issue for me when we were traveling from the U.S. back to Turkey uh, mid-May in 2020. Uh, we were basically on a government organized evacuation flight with my family. And then after landing in Turkey, we were put in a university dormitory. 
as part of our mandatory quarantine and we had signed you know consent forms about uh, the fact that we didn't uh, contract the uh, coronavirus we agreed to be taken care of and you know those kinds of things we were really taken care of quite well thanks to afad workers but from the moment we were at jfk until we left the dormitory there was an amazing active performance on the side of the government like for instance the media were there to film and ask passengers opinions from the moment that we uh, left the plane every day local officials would come to our dormitory to make announcements and also you know they would get our requests regarding what we needed we never saw these local officials they they were using you know central headphone systems uh, and in these announcements basically there was always some reference to higher authorities regarding how it was through their initiatives that we were taken care of and that no other state across the globe was doing this for their citizens and in these remarks of the local officials one could clearly sense the hints of a you know third world nationalism and a paternal form of care which foreground protection, right? So, uh, you know, local officials gave their private cell numbers uh, in case we needed something. So basically on the one hand, we were like the customers of uh, what Bülent Küçük and, you know, General Selçuk would call the enterprise state. But at the same time, there was a very strong affective dimension to this. Like the local officials always emphasize again, how the government was involved in a lot of sacrifices to provide that kind of care. And the intended outcome, I think, was to basically generate, generate a loyalty for the practice of care and sacrifice. There was a lot of effective branding involved where the goal was to make us feel grateful for, for uh, what we received. In relation to the project that we are doing with John, I think that branding has been central to the you know daily briefings, common briefings that were given by the health ministry uh, i'm not sure if it works anymore but I, I i would i would argue how this whole idea of you know presenting turkey as one of the successful countries in fighting this pandemic has been quite central to the government's communication strategy from the get go and um if our listeners are interested argin and bashak john have a wonderful article outlining their experience of quarantine, mandatory quarantine, and the university dormitory entitled Rebranding the Turkish State in the Time of COVID-19, published uh, in MERIP, the Middle East Research and Information Project. So let's move on to the question of labor, a question dear to my heart since I'm also working on labor. In my work, I don't use the term precarious because I think its problems outweigh its analytical capacity for my field, which is I work with migrant farm workers in Turkey. But it also has some power in certain fields, especially if we approach it critically. How do you feel about the analytical capacity of this term in discussions about labor? Again, you're book on the video game industry is entitled A Precarious Game, but you use the term critically. Could you briefly talk about your research and the more general framework of the book and then reflect on the question of precarity? For my book, the project was basically an ethnographic research of a medium-sized video game studio in the United States Midwest. I wanted to understand how labor of love looks like in this industry uh, based on the studio. 
who can play and who has to work in this global media industry? I pursued these kinds of questions. And the game studio I was doing research at for my book was producing AAA games, uh, which are the games for, you know, consoles like Xbox and also PCs. And when I was completing my three-year ethnographic research in 2013, a publicly traded game publisher owned uh, the studio that I was doing research. But then uh, this publisher would declare bankruptcy. A major finding in the book is that basically innovation and innov- innovative work is intrinsically precarious. But as you suggest, you know, jobs are precarious everywhere. So, you know, there's nothing really interesting about this. So in the book, what I try to do is I try to highlight multiple forms of inequalities uh, in the industry. So in doing that, I bring political economy, uh, workplace inequalities, gender and social reproduction, and also racialized production cultures, as I try to reveal uh, these various multi-dimensional inequalities. The core inequality basically was between the studio and the parent company, which was based in California. So in this case, uh, the studio that I was doing research was being punished, even though it was the flagship studio of this parent company, uh, mainly because, you know, the parent company would go bankrupt because of its bad business decisions. So uh, the kind of inequality I'm pointing to here is at the big level of political economy and the employment contract. Once a game developer signs a contract, what you produce as intellectual property belongs to the parent company. There are also uh, inequalities between uh, the core creative team, which is comprised of artists, programmers, and designers, and also the precarious game testers as a support uh, team. So there are two distinct groups. Now, testers are contract workers who tell me that they would feel like serfs or second-class citizens. So this would point to uh, workplace inequalities where some are more precarious than others. For instance, uh, one of my key informants was a female video game tester who would consider game testing as a dream job when I started my research. And when I was concluding my work, she would consider her work as as a a case of a dead-end job. There's also a racial level to inequalities in this industry because game developers love pushing the limits of technology and they produce offensive game content in my research site, right? So, you know, those libertarian practices can and will often hurt racial minorities because by coding subversive game content uh, through a discourse of fun, right? Because they're doing this because it's fun and it's, it's, it's just playing a game. It's not supposed to be serious. There's no ideology, they would argue. But ultimately, the the outcome would be that game developers actually exert a particular form of uh, symbolic violence on on, uh, minorities. And finally, the fourth level of inequality I I touch upon in the book is the question of gender and the domestic sphere. Creative game developers are able to pursue their dreams, mainly because somebody else has taken care of their families, right? So a major finding here concerns basically about is about gender which you know my book tackles at its intersection with class mainly because the 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 women that i talked to for this research uh were mostly middle class women who were you know in a relationship with a predominantly white male labor force so the book concludes by making a call to become killjoys we as academics also are passionate about work and we probably feel the burnout these days uh so the point i'm trying to make is basically you know 
being in love with your work sounds all good, but at the same time, it is just not sustainable. I don't think so. It not only legitimizes self-exploitation, but it also creates a lot of doubt on the side of the workers about you know, the extent to which we are doing enough, right? So I highlight the need in the book to be more cautious against the celebration of love at work because you know, capital or owners of capital will be more than happy to provide those uh, infrastructures for uh, digital labor just to ultimately consolidate property relations. Now, this was a long introduction about the book. So to go back to your question about precarity, Dennis, you are absolutely right. As a term, it has its problems, mainly because, you know, especially, you know, thinking about your work, it is quite a um, Euro-American concept. Uh, the whole notion that, you know, all of a sudden jobs are precarious, uh, employments are not stable, as, you know, your work also attests, uh, populations in the global south have always lived precarious lives. And in my own work, specifically the book project, I underline a few things about how I use this uh, term uh, critically. First of all, I think uh, we should avoid using precarity in simply uh, economic terms. Uh, it's just not. Uh, rather, I want to underline in the book how it is an effective dimension of late capitalism. It is the hegemonic form of employment, and basically it's, it's, it's how we live our lives these days, right? It's an, it's an existential issue. At the same time, in the book, I try to point to the compositional and decompositional form of precarity, uh, which I borrow from uh, anthropologists, to highlight, you know, it's not static. It increases and decreases in its scope and its uh, intensity. It is also relative, which I already, I think, laid out in relation to the core creative team and the more precarious uh, game testers. But overall, the goal in the book was, again, to emphasize how capitalism basically structurally produces precarity no matter what. You know, obviously, the game industry looks different from low-wage jobs, like the ones we find in the gig economy. Jobs look glamorous, workplaces are fun. And for some people, the radical uncertainty in the game industry is basically a normal and even an enjoyable thing. It's a, it's a chal challenging thing for these people. So in that regard, precarity, I try to emphasize in the book, is not simply a top-down issue, right? It involves and in fact depends on workers' participation from below. And by that, I mean basically how their participation is enabled by their passion and love for the work and ethos of hard work. So these aspects of passion, love, not only empower workers, but I argue how these also deepen their precarization. So precarity is in fact productive of subjectivities, especially again, because it is entrenched in love. So to go back to my earlier point about the economic kind of uh, dimension of precarity, it is not that precarity exists because there are fewer jobs jobs, which, you know, obviously it is, but it is not the only reason. Rather, uh, I think that precarity can be strong because of game workers' ideological and affective tendency towards the promise of play and the materiality of glamour. There is also, I think, that the false assumption that the video game industry is immune against economic crises. When I was talking to my uh, research participants, they would just think that they are, you know, strong. They just didn't think that uh, their jobs are endangered. And this is simply wrong. Historically, the, the industry crashed in 1983 due to greed and bad planning with respect to you know, platforms and game cartridges, which was in the case of Atari. And the industry had a recent crash again in 2008, uh, the more recent financial downturn. 
which led to many studio closures. So the advent of new models, again, such as free-to-play uh, model, has you know exacerbated industrial uncertainties. To answer your question, you know, middle-class jobs are also precarious, and they are different from the precarity of low-wage uh, jobs that uh, that are more precarious in many many other ways. And by showing that the middle-class jobs are precarious, I wanted to debunk the myth and fantasy of video game production as a dream job because again. Dreams in this dreams in this industry can very well uh, turn into precarious nightmares, which I think has important lessons for for academic work as well. Thank you. This is a wonderful outline of the book. I think two points that I find crucial are one the debunking of the do what you love um, discourse, which is a mantra that's going into the subjectivities of so many people in planning their futures, and in, especially as you made a remark um, on the similarities between academics and gamers, um, the creativity, the desires of being at g- good at your job, the competition being mainly in the intellectual and creative level, ties labor to one's self-worth and understanding of self in such a way that it becomes so difficult to dismantle the structures of inequality that go into making these subjectivities and power, as you remarked. The, the, second part, the second thing I want to talk about is the emphasis on gender and how you brought in um, the the partners of the workers of the video game industry who are quite invisible. You could have completely avoided them if you weren't willing to broaden the scope of your research. But they're basically, as you said, they're the infrastructure that keeps this creative work going. I find that also very interesting in your book. Uh, and like multiple layers of inequalities, um, and one of them being gender. So uh, from here, I think there is a link to the question of labor in journalism, just like in the academy and then creative work, there's an issue of precarity in journalism, as both of you have touched upon in response to the previous questions, but John, would you like to talk about precarity more specifically on the question of labor in journalism? Uh, in parallel to what uh, Ergin has said, I mean, uh, the so-called passion for the profession, uh, the uh, love of the job is used as a pretext or has been used as a pretext for especially those journalists who are employed by the companies or who are employed by uh, senior journalists uh, in the independent media sector as a condition for uh, sustaining uh, under hardships, uh, low wages, job insecurity, etc. However, it's again the uh, bigger question, the bigger problem is again the uh, problem of authoritarianism in Turkey, I think. 
the tight grip on journalism, the eliminations of dozens of media outlets, and the takeover of Turkey's biggest, largest media group by a pro-government uh, businessman resulted in the uh, literally vanishing of the mainstream. And uh, this also uh, led to the loss of well-paid jobs, many well-paid jobs, and increased the number of freelancers who are working under insecure conditions. And uh, by looking at this, it's still too early, and, or uh, it would be wrong to say that journalism is dead in Turkey. No, the journalism is not dead. It's still alive. But we can say that it's alive, but in a very poor health, and maybe it's even intubated. So we will see how it will recover uh, itself after the pandemic. But again, it's not the problem of pandemic. The problem is authoritarianism when it comes to the poor conditions of journalism in Turkey. And around the world, I I want to add, since social media and alternative forms of media which does not require fact-checking seems to contribute to the problems created around questions of journalism, labor, and academic knowledge production as well. So we have to conclude, since we have come to the end of our episode, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you so much both for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Denise, for the invitation. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Likewise. You can find links to Argyn Bulut's and John Artuna's uh, work in our show notes. And thank you so much for listening to our third COVID-19 series episode. Keep listening. <laughs>